welcome to Harmony Christian Church Podcast. For more information about us, visit HarmonyChurchFamily.org. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Let me find it here. We're going to begin in verse 1. It says, Many dishonest tax collectors and other notorious sinners often gathered around to listen as Jesus taught the people. This raised concern with the Jewish religious leaders and experts of the law. Indignant, they grumbled and complained, saying, Look at how this man associates with all these notorious sinners and welcomes them to come to him. Just like any good religious person, the Pharisees were angry and indignant and complained because Jesus was associating with sinners and with people who were viewed as less than the holy religious ones, right? Here's the problem with good religious experts. They believe the path to righteousness is, doing, is dotting every I and crossing every T. They believe the path to holiness is saying the right day, things, doing the right things, and never making a mistake. But the reality is the path to righteousness and the path to holiness is found only through love. Amen? It's not by getting everything right. It's not by doing everything perfect. The path to righteousness, the path to holiness is found through love. Amen? And you may be sitting there this morning saying, amen, I'm not a religious person. I'm not like those Pharisees. I love a good forgiveness story, right? You know, I love the story of the neighbor down the road who was an alcoholic who got saved and set free and praise God, Jesus intervened in his life and set him free and saved him, right? We love those stories. Matthew, we had one of those stories last week. Matthew and his testimony, and he was lost in the world, was caught up in alcohol and smoking and living just a, just a lifestyle to fulfill his own pleasures. And the Lord caught a hold of him and set him free. And now he's living passionately for Jesus. We we love those stories, right? And we ain't religious people. Amen. We want to see those people change. We want to see those people set free. And the truth is we're not religious until it comes to ourselves. We're not religious about other people being forgiven. We're not religious about Jesus pursuing other people and giving grace to other people. But when it comes to ourselves, we're just as religious as the most religious and stuck up Pharisee. Because we have in our minds that if we don't get it right, if we don't uh, make everything perfect, if we slip and fall up, then somehow Jesus doesn't want to sit down and mingle with us. And we are so hard on ourselves. We love the grace message for other people, but we have a difficult time receiving the grace message for ourselves. Can I get an amen? We have a difficult time receiving the grace message for ourselves. Let me tell you what Jesus's response is to that religious spirit. He goes on in the next verse and says this. 
He says, in, it says, in response, Jesus gave them this illustration. There once was a shepherd with a hundred lambs, but one of his lambs wandered away and was lost. So the shepherd left the 99 out in the open field and searched in the wilderness for the one lost lamb. And he didn't stop. Everybody say that with me. He didn't stop. He didn't stop until he finally found it. With exuberant joy, he raised it up and placed it on his shoulders, carrying it back with cheerful delight. Returning home, he called all of his friends and neighbors together and said, let's have a party. Come out and celebrate with me the return of my lost lamb. It wandered away, but I found it and brought it home. Amen. I found it and brought it home. Say this with me again. He didn't stop. Last week, Matthew talked about our pursuit of God, right? Remember that? Wasn't it awesome? He talked about our pursuit of God. Today, I want to talk about God's pursuit of us. How the God of creation, the one who made everything, he pursues us. Amen? I want to talk about how God pursues us. He pursues us even when we quit pursuing him. He pursues us when we get tired, frustrated, and cynical. How many of you have been tired, frustrated, and cynical lately? He still pursues us. He never stops. He leaves the 99 to pursue the one. He is determined to complete the good work he began in you. He is determined to complete the good work he began in you. He never stops pursuing, even when we do. When we give up pursuing, he doesn't stop pursuing. He is consistent when we are not consistent. And he pursues when we don't. And then he is patient to bring us back. Don't we serve a good God? He is patient to bring us back. I could talk about the prodigal this morning, but I'm going to refrain. Amen. You've all heard me talk about the prodigal before, so I'm going somewhere else this morning. But he is patient to bring us back. Why does he do this? Why does God, who needs, who needs no accolades, who needs no affection from us, why does God choose to pursue a creation that turned their backs on him? The God that created us, who gave us life, who asked one simple thing and we chose to disobey and turned our backs on him. The God who has no obligation, no obligation to love us or forgive us. Yet he pursues us even when we want nothing to do with him. Why does he do it? The simple answer is this, and this is really what I've come to talk about with you this morning. The reason the Lord pursues us is, is actually much more simple than you think. And it's simply because you are his beloved. Period. Because you are his beloved. And when we get that revelation, it changes absolutely everything. He pursues you even when you don't want him to, even when you want nothing to do with him, because he is absolutely recklessly in love with you. Amen.
Amen. Let me, let me read this to you as well this morning. He pursues us. Actually, let me tell you this story before I read this. He pursues us because we are his beloved. I remember back just a few years ago, um, I was kind of in one of those seasons where I was just being real apathetic. I wasn't really in any kind of sin or anything like that. The sin I was struggling with was just really just being kind of lazy towards my approach to the Father. And here's the thing. I was in youth groups still preaching to all the kids like, hey, you need to pray. You need to read your Bibles. You need to get with it and be passionate. But I, I myself wasn't doing it, right? I was just kind of kind of just uh, in that season where I just, I was just kind of, I don't know, I guess you could say frustrated with different things, cynical, and I was just kind of apathetic towards the things of the Lord. And what's interesting about those seasons is the Holy Spirit is constantly in you, drawing him to, drawing you to himself, right? So he's constantly just like knocking on the door, and again, just patiently waiting for you to return, and he's just stirring stuff in you. But it's, what's interesting, at least for me, in those seasons is I have a tendency to uh, avoid going back uh, into my pursuit of the Lord, even though I know that's what I should be doing. I, ha- I have a problem with feeling like it's, it's almost this fear that if I go back into prayer, if I go back into approaching them, what I'm going to encounter is a God who is frustrated with me because I haven't been doing what I needed to be doing. And, and, uh, and I'm afraid that when I approach him again, there's going to be disappointment and I'm going to have to start over. Even though I know in my head that's not true, that's, that's just the, the immediate reaction that I have. Can anybody relate to that? When you know you haven't been doing what you're supposed to and you know you should be, but you're apprehensive about it because you're afraid that when you do, you're going to meet a father who is upset. And so that's kind of where I was. I was, I was feeling guilty about it. I, w- I knew what I should be doing, but I was just having issues. Finally, one day, I, the, the guilt kind of got to me enough. And I was like, all right, I just got to do it. I just got to get back with it. So I, I took some time. I came over actually to the youth room. And I began just praying to the Father. And, and, and my prayer was, was kind, of like, kind of like, you know how when you were a child and you got in trouble... And you knew you were about to hear it from your parents. So what, what do you do? And you, you go in, you get called into the room. Your dad calls you into the room. And before he can open his mouth, you begin telling him how horrible of a child you are. Right? You're like, God, dad, I know. Like, I, I'm a loser. I messed up. I, I deserve all of your punishment. I, I'll ground myself. You know, like, I'll, I'm, I'll take away my own video games. Like, and, and you know, you're, you're like protecting yourself. Like, if I'm mad enough at myself, maybe he won't be as mad at me. Right? So that was kind of my approach when I entered in. I was like, God, I know I, I stink at this. I'm a hypocrite. I'm sorry. I, I deserve your wrath. You know, like smite me now, God, you know, send the thunder now. I deserve it. And that was kind of my approach. And so that was, that was my prayer. And, and I remember so vividly in that moment when I finally just shut my mouth, the only words I heard back from the father was he said this, he said, I am the bridegroom. My job is to win the bride. And in that moment, there was no judgment. There was no condemnation. All of that had been lifted off of me. There was no guilt. There was no starting from the bottom and have to work my way up. 
all that was there in that moment was the kindness of my father drawing me into repentance, pulling me back into his presence, into his arms and telling me how much he loves me. And just as the groom woos the bride to himself, the father wooed me back into his presence. Just yesterday, I asked Malachi, I don't know if he's, is he in here? Yeah, he's over here. I asked Malachi if I could share this story with you this morning. But just yesterday, we were just been dealing, we just dealt with some behavior issues. You know, he's a nine-year-old little boy, you know, surprise, he's going to have some issues, <laughs> some things you have to bring correction to. And we were just kind of dealing with some of those things. And, and uh, so I called him. Or he, he was in his room. Uh, his mom had sent him up to his room to sit on his bed uh, until dad got home. So I got home. She explained what was going on. And I went up to his room and I sat down. I sat him down right in front of me. And I, I'll be honest, I began just uh, correcting him. And I, I was stern. I was, uh, I wanted him to get his attention. So I was telling him and I was correcting him on what, what he was doing, his behavior issues, all of those things. I was coming down pretty hard on him. And he, he, of course, he began crying in that moment, which honestly I'm okay with, right? Paul says that godly sorrow leads to repentance, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I was bringing the godly sorrow. You know, every now and then you got to bring the godly sorrow. So I was bringing the godly sorrow. So he was crying. And then, then he said something that was not okay with me. He, he had his head down. He was crying. And I heard him say under his breath, he said, I'm so dumb. And as soon as he said that, the dad rose up inside of me and said, no one calls my son dumb. So I pulled him, oh God. So I pulled him up and I looked at him. I said, You are not dumb. I said, You are smart. You are intelligent. You are kind. You are generous. You are my son, and I love you. I said, the behavior before, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. I said, this is who you are. You are smart. You are love. And I, had him I made him repeat it after me. I said, say, say I'm smart. He goes, I'm smart. I said, say you're kind. I'm kind. I said, say you're generous. I'm generous. And I was like, say you're good looking. I'm good looking. <laughs> and then after that, I just gave him the biggest hug. And I hugged him until I felt the tension just release off of him. And in that moment, he knew who he was. He encountered the heart of a father who identified him not by his dysfunction, not by his behavioral issues, but defined him by the father's love. Defined him by the father. As we were walking out of the room, we, after that, after all that, we're joking around, we're wrestling, we're playing again, and we're walking out of the room. And he goes, hey, dad, you forgot something. I was like, what? He's like, I'm funny too. <laughs> I was like, you're right, man. You're hilarious. You know, <laughs> the Lord does not define us by our dysfunction. The Lord does not define us by what we've messed up and what we've done wrong. 
You do not, listen to me, you do not have the uh, privilege of defining yourself. I don't care what the world tells you. The world tells you you can be whoever you want to be. Guess what? You can't. You are only who he says you are. Who the father says you are. You don't get a choice. And he doesn't call you by your dysfunction. He calls you by who he says you are. And he says, you are my son. You are my daughter. And you are beloved. And there's absolutely nothing you can do to change that. That's how he defines you. Let me show you a few scriptures to show you this point. Romans chapter 8, verses 28. We're going to start in verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, so we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together to fit into God's perfect plan of bringing good into our lives. For we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his designed purpose. For he knew, listen to this, he knew all about us before we were born and he destined us from the beginning to share in the likeness of his son. Listen, he knew before you were born that you were going to struggle with pornography. He knew before you were born that you were going to get a divorce. He knew before you were born that you were going to have times where you told a lie. He knew you before you were born that you were going to have struggle with depression. He knew you were going to struggle with anxiety. He knew there was going to be times you doubted his very existence. But it says in his word, before you were even born, he destined you to be made in the image of his son. Before you were even born, even though he knew you were going to mess it all up, even though he knew you were going to become addicted to alcohol, even though he knew you were going to smoke cigarettes and use profanity, he knew all of that and still destined you to be made in the image and the likeness of his son and his daughter because you are his beloved. Amen. He knew all of it. He knew all of it and still chose you. For he knew all about us before we were born and destined us from the beginning to share in the likeness of his son. This means the son is the oldest among a vast family of brothers and sisters who will become just like him. Having determined our destiny ahead of time, he called us to himself and transferred his perfect righteousness to everyone he called. And those who possess his perfect righteousness, he co-glorified with his son. He didn't choose you because he thought you were going to be perfect. He chose you because he loves you, period. He knew you weren't going to be perfect. He knew you were going to struggle and he still chose you because of his great love with which he loved us. Amen. While we were yet sinners, before we got our act together, before we came the perfect shiny Christians that we are, he went to the cross to die for us because of his great love with which he loved us. Amen. Verse 31. So what does all of this mean? What does all of this mean? If God has determined to stand with us, 
Tell me, who then could ever stand against us? For God has proved his love by giving us this greatest treasure, the gift of his son. And since God freely offered him up as the sacrifice for us all, he certainly won't withhold from us anything else he has to give. If God determined to stand with us, who can stand against us? If God decided to stand with us, who has the power to oppose us? Listen, you can try and try yourself to convince God that you are unworthy to be called his son, but your worthiness has nothing, nothing to do with your actions. Your worthiness has nothing to do with your actions. You don't get to determine whether or not you're worthy of his love or not. He's already decided that you're worthy of his love and there's nothing you can do about it. He's already decided that you're worthy and there's nothing you can do about it. Who are we to stand against God? If he's made up his mind, we ain't going to change it. And he's made his mind up about us, that we are his sons and daughters and that he loves us with a love we cannot even understand. Listen, our greatest enemy, hear me out right now. Our greatest enemy is not the devil. You have more authority as sons and daughters in your little pinky to oppose the devil, right? He's not our mortal enemy. He's already been defeated by Jesus on the cross. And us as sons and daughters, he is far beneath our feet. He is not our greatest enemy. Our greatest enemy is looking at us in the mirror. Our greatest enemy is not anybody else. It's not the devil. Our greatest enemy is our own self-conscious telling ourselves over and over again how unworthy we are to be called the beloved of Jesus. That is our greatest enemy. But listen, who are we to stand against the Lord? He's already determined we are worthy. So we might as well give up, right? We might as well give up and just agree with him that we are the beloved and there's nothing we can do about it. Amen. Verse 35. Verse 35. Where is it at? Verse 35. Um, okay, actually, I'm going to start back in verse 33. Who then would dare to accuse those whom God has chosen and loved to be his? God himself is the judge who has had or who has issued his final verdict over them, not guilty. Who then is left to condemn us? Certainly not Jesus, the anointed one, for he gave his life for us. Even more than that, he has conquered death and is now risen, exalted, and enthroned by God at his right hand. So how could he possibly condemn us since he is continually praying for our triumph? Who could ever separate us from the endless love of God's anointed one? Absolutely no one. For nothing in this universe has the power to diminish his love towards us. Troubles, pressures, and problems are unable to come between us and heaven's love. What about persecutions, deprivations, dangers, and death threats? I want you all to know I practiced that word deprivations like 500 times before I preached this. <laughs> deprivations. I got it. So no laughing at me today, Cooks and, and Ransfords, right? I got the word. 
No, for, or no, for they are all, listen, they are all impotent to hinder the omnipotent love. And then this verse here, even though it is written all day long, we face death threats for your sake, God. We are considered to be nothing more than sheep to be slaughtered. I'm gonna stop there for a moment because this verse has always baffled me. It always seemed out of place to me, right? God's talking about how much he loves us. And how nothing could separate us from, a, from his love. And all of these things. Then all of a sudden it says, oh, by the way, persecutions, death threats. All of those things are going to come. But nothing can separate us from the love of God. It always baffled me until this week when I realized that what the Lord is saying, what, what the Father is saying here in this moment is all of those things can come. Death threats, persecutions. Paul, I mean, my goodness, Paul was shipwrecked. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was eventually uh, uh, executed for the gospel. And he said, even though all of those things can come, we are still more than conquerors because we've already won the war because we are the beloved. We've already achieved all that we need to achieve and we've already had victory over everything because we've already won the father's heart so even though all of those things may come we've already walked in victory because we are the beloved amen let me finish the rest of chapter 8 here it says yet yeah, even in the midst of all these things we triumph over them all for god has made us to be more than conquerors and has demonstrated his love or and his demonstrated love is our glorious victory over everything. So now I live with the confidence that there is nothing in this universe with the power to separate us from God's love. I'm convinced that his love will triumph over death. Life's troubles, fallen angels, or dark rulers in the heavens. There is nothing in our present or our future circumstances that can weaken his love. There is no power above us or beneath us. No power that could ever be found in the universe that can distance us from God's passionate love. Which is lavished upon us through our Lord Jesus, the anointed one. He loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's what I come to tell you this morning. That he loves you, and there's nothing you have done, and there's nothing you will do that can change that. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that the God of the universe loves us so much that he pursues us? That your worthiness is not determined by what you've done or where you've been. It's not determined by whether or not you've struggled with alcohol or you haven't. It's not determined whether or not you've been addicted to drugs or you haven't. It's not determined on whether or not you've been divorced or you've had 50 years of a strong marriage. His love is not determined by what you've done. His love is determined in the fact that you are his beloved. Period. You are his beloved. And there's absolutely nothing that will change that. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father.
when we can get that revelation inside of us. And you know what? I think it's one of the most difficult things to, it's, it's one of the most difficult things I believe to comprehend and to get revelation inside of us. We may know it up here, but we don't live it outwardly. We don't live it outwardly. And I know that because because I've seen it one in myself in the way that I respond or I react to different situations or different things. I don't live, listen, if you live with the understanding that you are beloved and that there's absolutely nothing you can do to change his mind, what kind of confidence does that produce inside of us? What kind of peace does that produce inside of us? Fear, fear isn't even an option anymore when you realize that the God of all creation who has all power and all authority, when he loves us the way that he loves us, when you fully understand that, there, fear doesn't even stand a chance inside of us because we know he's not gonna let anything touch his beloved. And so this morning, again, I've said it from the beginning, I feel the Father's heart here this morning. And he's here this morning to convince you that you are worthy. He's here this morning to convince you that you are worthy to be called a son and a daughter. That your mistakes that you've made don't matter to him anymore. All that matters is this moment right now, you saying yes to being his beloved. You saying yes to taking on that identity, to stop fighting and kicking against the idea that he loves you, the idea that you are worthy, the idea that you are his son. He's here this morning to break past all of that. And in this moment, hear you say, I am the beloved and fully embrace that identity. Hallelujah. And you know, some people may hear this message and think that this is hyper grace, right? This is hyper grace. I just gave everybody an invitation to do whatever they want. But you know what happens when you realize your identity as beloved? There's nothing inside of you that wants to run back to the vomit that you came from. There is nothing inside of you that wants to disappoint your father. There's nothing inside of you that wants to return to that. When you realize you're beloved, the, the Bible says that you begin walking in the high call that you have been giving. You begin walking in the identity of who you are. So no, this isn't a, this isn't a, a, um, a, a permission. This isn't permission to do whatever you want and the father will love you regardless. What this is, is a call to realize that even though you've messed up, you are still beloved. And now as you take on that identity, you begin walking out that identity. And then sin, things of this world aren't even enticing anymore. Pornography isn't even enticing anymore. Drugs, alcohol, they've lost their, their shine because there's something so much more precious and valuable, so much more addicting than any of those things. And it is the words of the father saying, I love you, son. I love you, son. I love you, son.
So I believe the Father's heart is here this morning. I want you to stand with me. I'm going to give an invitation again this morning. And here's here's why we do altar calls. Here's why we invite you to come up. It's not because I don't believe the Lord can encounter you on the way home or where you're at in your seat. He can absolutely do that. But the altar is, is this place of connection. It's this place of response. It's, it's the stepping out of your comfort zone and saying, Lord, I'm giving you everything. And I believe that there's a grace in that moment at the altar to receive everything the Father has for you, that you don't have to wait until you're riding home. You don't have to wait until you're in the privacy of your bedroom. But right now in this moment, you can encounter the love of Jesus. That's why we have altar calls. I believe it's a place of encounter. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna invite you this morning. If you've struggled with your identity, if you're like those religious Pharisees who don't think that you're worthy enough to be in the presence of Jesus, to be mingling with Jesus, that you're not worthy to be called a son and a daughter because of things you have done or things you have, have said or, or th- places you have been. If you believe that, I believe the altar is open this morning and I believe the Father's heart is here to release the beloved identity on your heart this morning. That that just, I believe, I see it right now in the spirit that just as I stood Malachi up right in front of me and I begin telling him, you are not dumb. You are smart. You are kind. You are generous. I begin renaming him. I believe that's what the father's going to do this morning. That he's going to look at you and say, you're not an alcoholic. You're not, you're not addicted to pornography. That's not who you are. You're not a liar. You're, you're not someone who, uh, you're not a person struggling in depression. You're not, you're not a person of anxiety. You're not a person of fear. Listen, you are beloved. You are my son. You have everything that the father has. Everything that I have is yours. And he's going to rename you this morning and break off those chains uh, or those wrong mindsets and those wrong identities. So if that's you this morning, I just invite you to take that step of faith out right now and come to the altar and encounter the Father's heart for you this morning. Let him rename you this morning. Let him break off that false identity. Let him break off that false identity and let him rename you as beloved this morning. So if that's you, please come to the altar this morning and encounter the love of the Father.